0: Hello and welcome to the Rocks Back Pages podcast. I'm sat here with Mr Mark Pringle. Hi, Barney. And Mr Jasper Murison Bowie. Hello, Barney. Hello, comrades. <laughs> Hello. <laughs> um, yes. Good day. Uh, good day. <laughs> Today we'll be talking about American folk country troubadour John Prine and featured writer Mike Barnes, but we're going to start with the suave gentleman known variously as Byron Ferrari, Brain Fury, Biryani <laughs> Ferret, and Brian Barnett. But who today
1: we'll call by his actual name, which is, Mark... <laughs> I've forgotten it now. Brian, Fe- <laughs> Brian Ferry. What's brilliant about all those names, most of which were coined by the enemy. Is they got under his skin? He mm. really didn't like it. Mm. You know, this is a man who doesn't have much sense of humour towards himself. I don't
2: know. <laughs> <laughs> I'll certainly be referring to him as Byron Ferrari or <laughs> throughout the yeah. podcast.
0: So the reason we're talking about Brian Ferry, the lead singer of Roxy Music, is because they've just—I don't know who they are—but someone's just released. A live album of a show he did in December 1974 at the Royal Albert Hall. Some bloke's at the back of a white van that just released. (laughs) No, I I think it is a legitimate record company. (laughs) So it's the first solo shows he did. I mean, Oxy Music was still going, but he had released at that point two albums of cover songs. Two
1: fairly ghastly albums of cover songs.
0: Well, let we'll talk about it, actually. So, <laughs> so these foolish things with its title track, Curtis of Cold Porter, come out in 73. And then Another Time, Another Place Came Out in 74. And, you know, this was a very different brian ferry to let's say the, the guy that we saw on top of the pop singing virginia plane very
1: very very different brian ferry and i mean he did the second worst version of jealous guy the first the worst being the original version by john lennon <laughs> and by far the best being Donnie oh Hathaway's, yeah that, that's a great version. you know but but so so this, yes the second worst version of Jealous Guy. <laughs> well you know, i was a huge roxy fan so I, I yeah, you too.
0: were a roxy fan as well and so i did actually i bought these foolish things, because it was Brian Ferry. And, you know... It was regretting instantly. Well, looking back, all these... Did I really want to hear Brian singing, you know, Dylan's Hard Brains, it's my my Smoke Gets in My Eyes... It's my part. You know, it's my Christ. party. I mean, <laughs> there were a lot of cover albums being done in those days. Yes, decks, Bowie right done man. pinups.
1: Everyone around, around had to do a
0: cover album. Same time.
1: Well, I think... But was Bowie's Pinups the first? It predated these foolish yeah, things, yeah. I um, think. Uh, And I think... Both 73, actually. Yes, sort of set the tone for it. I mean, Roxy music were just such an exciting... Mm -hmm. when Mm -hmm. they first emerged. I think their second album, which is named Tile Escapes Me, for your pleasure, (laughs) is just a great, great record. I roded for Roxy Music at the Slough Community Centre in <laughs> 19, early 72. It's, it's like Adolf Hitler, my part in <laughs> yeah, his downfall, exactly. isn't it, really, um, with Mark, Because my, my art teacher, John Ragg, was, was there roadie. In fact, in the first album, it says Transport by Ragg, so he dragged me along. And I realised I couldn't pick up a Fender Twin Reverb amplifier. I was too spindly to do
2: that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, But, 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 but so no, I mean,
1: my school, Holland Park School, Andy McKay taught woodwind instruments in the music department. Eno came to demonstrate the VCS3 synthesizer and got chased out by skinheads shouting "You poof!" I think those, <laughs> like, those were the days. So Roxy music, almost like a house band for my school. You right. know, they they, they 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 sort of belong to us in a curious kind of way. And um, Virginia Plain was such a startlingly brilliant record. Well, they were so futuristic, weren't yeah, they? Yeah. And, they were, and so
0: when Brian did these covers albums, it seemed awfully sort of
1: retrogressive. Well, it pointed days. towards it pointed out what he fundamentally was, which was fairly reactionary. Yes, he had that sort of art school features. He was mm-hmm. at art school himself, but in the end, I mean, rock's music themselves became more and more reactionary band. They became the sort of more and more middle of the road. They I mean, wanted they, they, hits in America and got them. Yeah, of but also I think ultimately that was his taste emerging. Yes, he was he was a smooth operator. He was a,
0: wasn't sm- he? Yeah. probably too smooth, and actually the first of the pieces. To do with this is actually a review of one of those shows. I think he actually did three shows in Albert mm. Hall, and this is the the, the wonderfully catty Philip Norman. Oh, he's great re- <laughs> reviewing for the Times, and so he sets the scene. The better boxes were filled with the fashionable elite of rock music. Vigorously semaphoring their prestige and their exclusiveness. (laughs) Wonderful. And then he writes of Brian, ''It engages our attention that a man wearing evening dress and hairdressing should sway and bend his knees in the execution of a rock song.'' ''It surprises us that a voice, little stronger than that of a guard's subaltern on amateur night, should be exercised upon the songs of Brian Wilson.'' Chris
1: Christopherson and Stevie <laughs> Wonder. <laughs> Ooh. Ooh! Ouch! Ouch! I think it occurs to me that Philip Norman is the, the British John Mendelssohn in a way, because I've barely read a positive review. And He wrote for The Times in sort of the yes. 70s. Yes, I've barely read a single positive review of his. It's
0: very elegant to stay, yeah want, um,
1: Remember, I read that one for his yeah. review of Barry White. Yeah. On one of the podcasts a few back. That was Hilarious. Yeah. Except for Lloyd Bradley looking slightly glaring over the top of the microphone at me while I read it. <laughs> Moving um, on.
0: Well, so the second piece is an interview that Max Bell of The Enemy actually did with The Enemy. mentioned them yeah. earlier. Did just before these shows, and he's kind of asking Brian about them and Brian says I haven't been there yet I'm not going until they push me on stage I think he clearly was quite nervous about this Mm -hmm. but the title of the piece really sums up the enemy's attitude to Byron Ferrari Um, (laughs) it's a picture of him wearing a kind of tweed jacket and a tie and it's titled tired of that same old anorak achieve the country life look in a comfy tweed blazer by Ferrari of South Kensington. <laughs> I mean, they had
1: really decided yeah. that he he was well, preposterous. Well, I think it's partly because he seemed to take himself so seriously. Yeah. And also, he was a really humorless interviewee. And I've read a lot of interviews, in oh. my job as... Is... <laughs> and, uh, and, and this is a man... Well, he always strikes me as being a bit depressive. Do
0: you know what? I think you're right. I think he is... I mean, I've only interviewed him once, and I found him both... Quite depressed mm-hmm. and quite humourless. <laughs> Good <You> combination. <laughs> but, 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 but which is bizarre when you think about the the sort of the wit and space age. Genius of the lyrics, yeah, on, yeah. Those, on those first so, I mean, rock Roxy Roxy are neither,
2: neither depressing nor humourless. Yeah. I think Brian, a bit like Mick
0: Jagger, Brian became very enamoured of, shall we say, the English upper classes, yeah. and indeed married into them. And and and, and he, for for what was he? I mean, he was he grew up in Newcastle. That's right. You know, and I don't know why all this seemed so impressive to him, well, it just I, did. Well, it
1: just it does to quite a few people from, let's say, essentially kind of working class or lower middle class backgrounds who are impressed by the... the Jagger's stocks. never really got over it. Uh, well, Jagger was almost part of it in the first
2: place, you know. I mean, I mean yeah, because yeah, Jagger is not, not exactly a middle class. Yes. Uh, guy, uh, so uh, I, don't, I don't think it's sort of limited to... Uh, just, uh, no, I, I mean... You know, it's not a sort of looking upwards necessarily from working class no, or no, member class individuals. I, 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 think it's... I,
1: I think very really bought into it. People uh, do and, buy into it. also it. ended up either skewing or a bit, either creation of or creating his own fairly politically reactionary attitudes exemplified by his hunt his, his mm. hunting son for example. Yeah. You know, there's something there's, I think was always already there and that his wealth and his position allowed him to marry into and kind of Become part of that sort yeah. of thing, yeah. which I find pretty nauseating myself. M- Max notes that so the
0: Roxy album, Country Life, the fourth Roxy album, yeah. had come out earlier that year, and uh, Max says claims that Country Life was named after an obscure reference to metaphysical poet John Donne are incorrect. Um, (laughs) In fact, the riddle is solved by a brief look around Brian's front room where three or four copies of the famous (laughs) magazine of that name are scattered. Yep. So, I mean, there we are. You know, this this is two years after Virginia Payne and Remake Remodel, and he's reading country life one
1: of one of your good friends his brother-in-law for a stretch one of our writers edward Helmore,
0: is was his brother-in-law yeah, yeah. yeah.
2: so i, mean, I uh, wonder if it's somewhat to do with if someone becomes famous and you then as a celebrity you don't you feel like other people aren't treating you as they might have before you're a celebrity and then there's this lure of aristocracy because that's mm-hmm. sort of what they sort of give up on the idea of being a normal person to begin with, if you're an aristocrat. And so it's sort of like escapism, in a way, to try and join in with that other world Mm. because the real world is closed off to you by your celebrity status. I I think that's a
1: very good point, and it's also a two-way street because certainly some of the aristocracy were wildly attracted by those who emerged from rock and roll. Certainly in the 70s, there was this kind of fairly... Well, probably particularly in the 60s, actually, with the
0: whole, the Stones became very much, we mentioned Jagger, became very much a sort of magnet for the more debauched elements of the English aristocracy. You know, the Gettys and the Guinnesses and all of that.
2: My sweet Lady Jane When I see you again
0: The last of the pieces, funny enough, is Brian back at the Albert Hall in late 2002. Lisa Verico reviewing the suave crooner, as she calls him, aged 57 now playing to, quote-unquote, an audience mainly of women with 1980s hair and smart shoes and men with neatly trimmed beards. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, um, the vibe was a touch to Cocktail Hour at a posh hotel, but then that's always been Ferry's forte. Mm. I mean, so- you know,
1: to, to, to his, in his favour as a solo artist, he's provided steady employment of some very good musicians. Chris Spedding, for a long time, has been... Ferris' guitar player of choice and so mm. on and so forth, you know. And, you know, he's obviously kind of got good taste in a certain sort of limited kind of way. Yeah, possibly sort of too good
0: yeah. taste. I mean, I think many of his solo albums are... They're sort of tasteful to a point
1: of perfection... Sort of sterile perfectionism, yeah. Yeah. you know. I mean, it's just it's such a shame because those first two Roxy albums were so electrifying... And playful. And playful yes. and exciting... And you got extraordinary songs like "In Every Dream Home a Heartache," which is just mm, magnificent exactly. piece of work, exactly. you know. And then from there, via Roxy and Avalon, and those it just sorts becomes of, a bit too a bit bland, a doesn't b- it? A effect. bit, yeah. very, very bland yeah. indeed. Yeah, and maybe just, it's just that. I think when Eno left, yeah, that changed everything. And the way in which Eno left it is it's in itself interesting. It became... Ferry hated the fact that this lunatic on one side of the stage, with vast amounts of makeup and and, and giant like ostrich feathers, feathers. on his back, w- yeah. was, was drawing at the attention yeah. of the audiences. He, yeah, he, I he, think that's he, right. He resented that. That. Fact. Yeah, yeah, I think so.
0: Also free on Rocksback Pages this week are three pieces by the excellent Mike Barnes, who's long been a writer on The Wire. Mike um, is just publishing this month. I believe it's 600 pages long. It is the (laughs) definitive... Definitive Account of UK progressive rock in the 70s. It's called A New Day Yesterday. It'd be a bit weird to write a short book about prog. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, That's very good like, point. yeah. a sort of three minute version of, of prog. No, you're absolutely right, it has to be very long. It really, it should Surprise, be published as a triple album, yeah. right? It, it is the, it's, it's <laughs> sort of tells from the tropographic
1: oceans in book four. So, if this is a hundred page book, does it mean that the short book has to happen? <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, a sort
1: of short history of punk rock to okay. follow on
0: its heels. I mean, I, I haven't read it as yet, but I know it'll be very good yeah. because Mike is is really good. On I mean, his Beefart book was was absolutely terrific, mm-hmm. and in fact, one of the three pieces is an, is an excerpt from that Beefart book, which came out in 2000, and it's an account of the making of Trump mask replica. But we thought that the the two most fitting of the pieces of his we have on RBP a wire piece on what was, for him, the epiphany of hearing Pink Floyd's Ummer Gummer <laughs> at, the, at the age of, I think, 12 years, 12 years old. And he clearly never recovered from this. One of his mates had an older brother who was the local head, seven years older than us, tall, skinny, shoulder-length corkscrew hair, billowing loon pants. And they went round to ants like, pad... In Norwich, I think, is where we are. <laughs> and first record that Ant put on was I'm a Gummer," And he's just very funny, Mike, about yeah. about hearing I'm a Gummer," I, which I, he calls I, sort of the apogee of psychedelia and or self-indulgence run amok. Mm-hmm.
1: We were talking quite extensively about this in the office yesterday because Paul, our colleague...
2: Is shall we say something of a fan of Pink Floyd? A little bit. He's got all of their albums yeah. and some of them multiple times.
1: <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> and I just remember that the, those "I'm a "Atom Heart Mother" were perfect platforms to stick three riffs together for the elaborate schoolboy joint circa 1970-71. <laughs> you know, um, I saw them in the park in I think it was '69, supported by Kevin Ayers and the Whole World, and it was quite possibly the most boring show I've seen in my entire life, with kind of the fairly loathsome figure of Roger Waters up front, screwing his face up at the angst of his lyrics, barking, careful with that axe, Eugene. Right, which of course
0: is a track on, on Umma and, um <laughs> with, with magnificent bathos, Mike writes after this this epiphany, the *Amagama* epiphany. He writes. Cycling off in the dark to meet friends at the Blowfield Village bonfire party, a chunk had broken off Pink Floyd's universe and it was whirling like a nebula inside my adolescent head. And everything looked different now and life would never be the same again.
2: It's interesting Pink Floyd does seem to inspire that kind of devotion and mm-hmm. where people just get sort of like totally transported mm-hmm. by whatever it is that they're doing and... Yeah, I mean, he says life will never be the same again. I mean, that's mm. a pretty pretty striking endorsement of a of a band's music that if listeners haven't noticed that there is some scorn being poured on <laughs> Pink Floyd from the host not of Parley. this podcast. Not, not, but, not, I
1: mean, you know, the, 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 first of all, you know, I'm just about too young to remember 1967, you know, um, being the oldest person in the room by a few years. In the years, building, probably. In the building, probably. <laughs> but they were... Really important in certain respects cool. is, is that they were a liberating influence, and a, a lot of bands that followed them. They were part of, even though they were a curious band, basically the original Sid Barrett version was split into two there's the two acid heads and the two beer drinkers, Sid very much being one of the acid heads. And, you know, they, they were a very middle class bunch, you know, architecture students and so on and so forth. They weren't good musicians. This is, this, this to separate them off from Prague. Prod yeah, and Mike kind of alludes to yeah. that. I think that's that's quite interesting. They, they, they were pretty primitive yeah. players. Dave Gilmore coming in initially as, alongside and then as a replacement to Sid Barrett, yeah. upped the game in terms of just technical ability to mm-hmm. play. Mm-hmm. And in a way, it's kind of quite nice that they weren't. They were imaginative to try and do interesting things without... Much to do them with, so they got involved in all kinds of quite interesting what we'd regard as art rock experiments with loop tapes and things like yeah. that. Yeah. So they, they were a pioneering band. We all love Krautrock, for example, mm-hmm. and I think there's no doubt that Void were a big influences on those, Germ- those German groups. I mean, interestingly, Mike Barnes in this piece makes
0: it clear that i didn't lead to a lifelong devotion to Pink okay. Floyd. Mm-hmm. Interesting. I mean, he says it's their most exploratory album precisely because they were prepared to take risks and overreach themselves yep. at that point. And he actually says, you know, once they released the plodding dark side of the mm-hmm. moon, sorry, Paul, which, <laughs> which they're still proud of, my interest in them began to wane. Yep. Okay, which sort enough. of leads us to the, to the second Mike Barnes piece, which is an interview with Peter Hamill, also from The Wire in 2007, mm-hmm. where inevitably he talks about Hamill's band, Van de Generator, right. who were very different from Pink yes. Floyd, and in some ways much more influential on... Punk and post-punk, as proggy as they were, yeah. they they were, I mean, I think much more interesting yeah. than Pink uh, Floyd.
1: John Lydon was a fan of Van de Graaff I never liked them. I found them too angular and difficult, actually, in a curious kind of way. But I can absolutely see, we were talking last week about Andy yeah. Gill and the Gang of Four, yeah. that some of that angularity that the post-punk bands had actually has more to do with Van de Graaff generators than, than kind of anything else. In, in, in well, And
0: respect. particularly Hamill's solo album Nadia's yes, Big Chance, yes. which came out in 75 mm-hmm. and was, I mean, there's no, it's no secret. It was a huge influence, not only on John Lydon, but on Marquis Smith. Yes. So Hamill was a bit of a hero to some of these emergent punks. Mm. There's just a couple of, I mean, I think he's a really interesting guy. I I, I saw him perform once. as I never saw Van der Graaf. Right. I saw him do a show the Bloomsbury Theatre and it was actually just really really compelling he he was a really compelling Mm -hmm. writer and performer and he, so, Hamel says in this piece, I think that historical perspective has collapsed everything down into a prog era. Mm-hmm. But what is often forgotten is that it was an extraordinary period of about 10 to 15 years from 1964, where something different was happening every year. Yeah. But he says a little bit later, he says, I'm actually quite happy to be rolled into prog, mm-hmm. because it meant covers of magazines and all that sort mm-hmm. of thing but I think there was this element of aggression, of chaos that was there in our music yes. uh, that wasn't generally there in what came to be known yeah, as uh,
1: sure I think that's absolutely spot on, that Van de Graaff Generator had none of the pompous grandiosity of bands like Emerson Lake and Palmer in particular. Or Rick, the Rick Waitman Mirror, yes. Rick yeah. yes, very much. I mean, you know, my brother, was, when I was a kid, he was buying albums by The Nice, who Keith Emerson was part of, and... And Yes, and Yes's first three albums to me still sound absolutely fabulous, mm. but they're almost closer to West Coast rock than what we'd now regard mm. as prog. Yes. There's the use of harmonies, the song structures and songwriting, which is, is really rather fabulous. Wakeman joined. I saw them supporting Iron Butterfly, of all people, at Albert Hall in 71, and they were fantastic. Right. They were re- yeah. Tony Kay on organ, Steve Howard just joined on guitar yeah, great players and, in their way but when wakeman joined, now wakeman's got a great track record he played some of the on some of the best bowie albums pretty pre Ziggy bowie albums his and Straubs, all kinds of interesting mm. stuff but somehow he was liberated by yes to d- produce the worst excesses of Prague. yes and, 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 and that's for his solo album oh. The Less Six of the Wives yeah. of Henry He's actually VIII. a very jovial figure. He occasionally turns yeah. up in TV programmes now. And he's yes, he's going very... to doing a podcast next week. <laughs> <laughs> um, Joke, but, folks. But, 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 you know, the, them, themselves and Emerson, they compile They're all the kind of the, the third-rate, second-division prog bands, of which they huge numbers. Playing the student circuit round, mm. round England in the mid-'70s.
2: Mm. What I think that Van der Graaf Generator sort of nicely demonstrates is that the straight line or straight sort of opposite that mm-hmm. people like yeah. to draw between prog and punk yeah. is a construction in a yes. lot of ways. Yeah. I mean, we, we actually, I think, you were talking about that with, with Dorian Linsky the other week, where it's like these these sort of neat narratives that get yes. superimposed yeah. yes. on eras of music. Yeah, not, it doesn't really work like no, that. No, I There's think always fine. connecting bands and yeah. connecting movements and also things that overlap. Also, we forget how
1: short the punk period really was. I mean, yes, it went on afterwards with the Oi bands, which is the Sham 69s and Angelic Upstarts as well. But, you know, the pure punk period was basically 18 months. And rapidly, punk bands were saying, this, this isn't good enough. We yeah. can't keep playing three chords and mm. shouting. Mm. So you've got bands like The Slits integrating sure. reggae and all kinds of stuff, and Wire who mm. we were talking about, I think Dorian Linsky we were talking about. I'll why, bet right? why I listened to Van de Graaf, Absolutely. Actually, you know? Absolutely.
0: I mean, all this is exemplified by this very funny quote from, from Hamill in this piece where he talks about Marquis e. Smith of The Fall. Um, he says, I last saw Mark in the Netherlands some years ago. Several beers were consumed over <laughs> a couple of days but not a lot of sense was made. Mm. But he says, I think we acknowledge each other as different sides of the same coin. Yeah. Resistance to orthodoxy, I suppose. So, of yeah. Great piece about an interesting guy. And Mike's book is to give it its full title is called A New Day Yesterday: UK Progressive Rock in the 1970s.
1: Well, I and mean, I, it's, it's unmissable. I would
0: say this: I mean, if you've any interest in, in that era, I know it will be a right riveting read. Yeah, yeah. And, and,
1: he's he's very, published... and Mike's a very stylish writer, so it'll be. A good read, too. Yeah. yeah, and he's actually,
0: the other day, was on Mark Allen and Dave Hepworth's Word in Your Ear mm-hmm. podcast, so check that out, too. So those are the free offerings on the home
1: page, mm-hmm. and now we turn our attention, do we not, Mark? We do. too. Well, the first thing is our audio interview, which is... John Tobler interviewing John Prine, the American's kind of country folk singer songwriter. Oh joy, another country folk <laughs> singer songwriter. Back in your box, <laughs> thrilled. Yes. Back in your box. You weren't supposed to come in that <laughs> early, with, 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 with your heresies. <laughs> and it, actually, it, it, it's a delightful interview. I mean, I can't say we'll, we'll talk about Prine later in more detail, but, but he's someone who sort of slightly passed me by, even though I liked a lot of music in the territory he was operating in. But we'll kick off straight away with a, with a clip, because it's actually one of the first things he talks about, where he, the unlikely moment when he got to write a song with Phil Spector. Now, we were talking about this yesterday, there's a, there's a book to be written about all the people who've had run-ins or dealings it's with all Phil held Spector. held hostage yeah. at, the, at, at Phil Spector's mansion. It's pretty close. The 45 was produced, which we, we will hear about now. <laughs>
3: He didn't like Al being with me. Al was, found out I was going up there with Elburner and Al said, can I come up too? I'd to i love it." you know. i like to meet Phil Spector. I said, sure. So. He didn't like the idea when he found out Al was my manager. He didn't like the idea of a manager being in his house, you know. And, uh, and he motioned to me to follow him in the kitchen. He went in the kitchen, he pulled out his, he had a .44 Magnum on him. He had a three-piece suit. And he had a Christmas tree by the front door, right? And this is, uh, it was well after Valentine's Day. (laughs) (laughs) And and, uh, and his kids all come down, running down the stairs in um, their pajamas. And and his way of telling them that was, he said, who's the king of rock and roll? And they go, you are, daddy, you are. (laughs) Okay, this is a little special. I go to the kitchen with him. He takes this 44 Magnum out opens the door to the backyard and sticks it outside he says, he says okay he says, I'm going to throw a chair around the room he says and you holler he says like you're getting hurt so he starts banging the chair against the refrigerator and I go ah he goes, <laughs> like this he was doing all this for Al to scare Al uh, right and he came out we, we walk out of the kitchen laughing together right Harvard, Harvard. and Al's sitting there going and Al knew it was because Al's going he's going he said I think it was a Forty four or thirty-nine 40. Like, he just talked like he totally ignored <laughs> <laughs> what's going on <laughs> there. <you> go. <laughs> He's a real case though. If you don't want my love. If you don't want my love. If you don't want my
1: I mean, who's the king of rock and roll? You are, Daddy. You are. <laughs> it's just
0: because it takes on a slightly macabre tinge when we know well, of what happened to Lana uh. Clarkson. But as you say, it's not the not the only example of someone you know not not being able to leave
1: Casa <laughs> Spector. <laughs> well, the thing is, they went to write a song together, and nothing happened yeah. until he's leaving the door. He's actually almost halfway. Phil hated it. people leaving. Yeah, yeah. And then suddenly, this sort of song emerged. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's just extraordinary. But yeah. so he talks about that. He talks about his favourite songwriters, about writing the Shell Silverstein. Very interestingly, he's a guy who got really disenchanted with the mainstream music business in quite a hurry. He had a rough experience at Atlantic, then a rough experience at Asylum. He'd recorded his album, Pink Cadillac, which was rough and readily put together with his own road band. And he took it to Asylum, and the guy at Asylum said, are you sure this is the record you wanted to give us? Mm. You know, and so he set up his own label in 1981. This is really pioneering stuff. It's still going to this day. It's actually had some. Oh boy, records. D- oh boy, records. Some, oh, boy. Some, oh boy. Some degree oh boy. of success. He also talks about, and we'll play a clip again right now, how in the mid 70s, the New York Times wrote this piece about the next Bob Dylan competition. And it's John Prine, Loud and Wayne Lydon 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 Wainwright, Lydon Wainwright yeah. uh, Elliot Murphy. Elliot Murphy. Yep. And Bruce Springsteen. Yeah. And Bruce Springsteen, many years later, comes along to see a show and and a prime show. A, a prime show. And let's listen to this. This is great.
3: There's a New York Times article about '73, maybe, and it was like the it was like the new Bob Dylan contest. It was. A, Springsteen, Loudon Wainwright, Keith Sykes, Elliot Murphy, and myself. Yeah. And it was this big article in the Sunday New York Times about who's going to be the new Bob Dylan. You know? And I, you know. And uh, uh, so I, I, uh, the night he came down to see me, I did an introduction before Bruce Hennett told the audience about this whole new Bob Dylan contest. Yeah. <laughs> and, I, and I talked about what happened to each each one. I said, of course, Loud and white night is Loud and night. And like, uh, Keith Sykes lived in Memphis, and he was a record producer, but now he's an artist again. And it went on and on, you know. And I said, of course, I'm here. I'm stuck here with you. <laughs> I said, I said, this guy, I said, this guy, to do something completely different. <laughs> I thought about, about, it was always like a thousand seater. The people, their heads up. Nailed against the wall. It was just like that. They just couldn't believe it. (laughs) It was really neat. If dreams were lightning, thunder were desire, this old house would have burnt down. Ain't long.
1: He's very affectionate about the Springsteen, Bonnie Raitt, you know... And, who who d- done a number of his songs. That's right. Most famously, Angel, Angel from Montgomery. That's right, rather beautifully. Yeah. Um, and he said whenever he was in a, town, a given town, he had nothing to do with an, an, of an evening, he'd find out where Bonnie Raitt was playing, and even if it meant kind of like getting a plane to go and see her, mm. he'd go and see her. Mm. He also talks about... He, he recorded a lot in Memphis, not the first location come to mind when you think about, about him, but he loved those musicians... He also had an album produced by Steve Cropper. He's very funny about recording in Sam Phillips' the studio. And yes, you tell the story there. Yes,
0: yeah, so, so Pink Cadillac was being done at I guess the Phillips International Studio. Yeah. I'm not quite sure. And then apparently Sam comes by on the way to the bank. He says, right and. <laughs> and uh, and afterwards, um tells him, you know, I, I thought your voice was so terrible that I should stick around and see if I could fix it. <laughs> <laughs> so, look, we know Jasper really detests this kind of music. Any Anything... <laughs> He's squirming with, in his yeah, seat in agony. You know? Anything with a like, hint of country in it <laughs> yeah. uh, brings Jasper out in anything, anything. But we're here to defend... Things. Yes, we, we are. ...this kind of proto-American. We, we
1: were listening to the, some stuff in the office yesterday. And, and but you, Barney, said... Steve Earle. You, you could really yeah. hear a lot of Prine and Steve Earle. And Prine has as much to do with that sort of Towns, Van Zandt, Guy Clark, Steve yeah. Earle, Texas sort of aesthetic of songwriters, country yeah. slash folk songwriters, as he's got to do with anything else. But he's before them.
0: yeah. He came out of the folk scene in yeah. Chicago. I mean, he—it's weird because in the interview he really sounds southern, yeah, and, and and he isn't southern. Well, but he, he almost, almost became no, a doctor. No, he
1: was born in the south. He, he is, is, was born in Illinois. Uh, well, he talks about him his his home place being the same county that the Everly Brothers came from. Okay. So I'm it, only going by it's something called Wikipedia. <laughs> Um, <laughs> I, but, would, but, I wouldn't
2: trust it. Yeah, is that from it. that newfangled internet <laughs> thing?
1: But, but uh, he, he, talk, you know, he talks about his great friendship with Steve Goodman, who's more of a yeah. blues player, Steve Goodman, really, a sort yeah. of finger-picking blues player. But he's charming in this interview. He's he, absolutely he, delightful. He, he really, really is. And I think he's an interesting guy. Yeah, you know, yeah.
0: Even if... I'm, I don't think he's the greatest singer. No. I don't think he's the greatest, like, chordsmith, as it were. I think his music is... That's is that interesting, is yeah. that interesting? I do think he's one of the great lyricists. Yes, the stories that he tells, the humour in his songs—it's
1: quite funny because John Tobler actually rather objects
0: to this in the interview. <laughs> yes, he, he does. Says, doesn't he? You have to keep making jokes in your songs. In your sad, in the saddest songs, sadder song. you'll drop a joke in. And what does what he says something like that? No song too sad, you can't get a joke in there somewhere. Else, right? <laughs> I like that. That's quite yeah, a nice yeah. And he, he is a very witty writer and a very poetic writer. I mean, yeah. his famous songs are... Like, Sam Stone is this, is a song about a Vietnam veteran who, who comes back to America and becomes a junkie. There's a great song called Donald Lip. That first album mm-hmm. was a bit of a singer-songwriter classic. And you mentioned, I mean, it was actually recorded with the American studio musicians That's in right. Memphis, but produced by, of all people, Arif Marden. <laughs> You know, he was on Atlantic, yeah. and and you sort of think I mean there is a funny point in the interview where he says, um, you know, I think Toba says, Well, why did you leave Atlantic for asylum? He did three albums also on, on asylum. And he says something like, Well, it just seemed to me like Armand Ersigan would just wanted to spend all his time with the Stones and Led Zeppelin. <laughs>
1: <What's> <laughs> and I was one? only
0: there because I was under contract, yeah, yeah, you know. Yeah. I mean, I really enjoyed yeah. listening to him and I and I, you know, I am a fan, I can't say I'm like cognizant of, of his whole body of work but I like the guy he's had some of course some fairly heavy health issues over the years he's had bouts with cancer including i think there was a kind of he had problems again last year right. but he's back on the road he's touring europe at this very moment he won a
2: grammy lifetime achievement award wow. and interesting one of his bouts with cancer is he actually caused his voice to to change noticeably he yeah. got a much gravellier voice after one after one treatment that he had to have for, well he for, couldn't even sing for about he a year sing for a long okay. time he had then, an but then extensive then he had a you know, uh, you know,
1: and the fact that without anything resembling mainstream success, I'd guess his first two or three albums were as big as they ever got. By setting up his own label, he's got independence in a way that very few artists yeah. do. He's managed to sustain a career. He can either go out, if he can afford to, he can go out with a small band, or if he mm. doesn't, can't afford to, he can go out just by himself. Yeah. He does say he's fed up with touring in this interview. You know, mm. It's just travelling just gets too tedious. But yeah. Oh Boy is still a viable record label. Yeah. It's still going... And that's you know that's thirty years, uh, you know that that's forty years. Yeah, that's 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 pretty. Pretty good going but for I think
0: th- he's had a steady kind of career without mm. any, obviously, like, hits and stuff. But but there've been Big successful cover covers of his songs. Always good for the band And he bands. did win a Grammy for... The album that had come out most recently when John Tobler interviewed him, this is 92, mm-hmm. was The Missing Years, that won a Grammy. And the title track is Prine's account of what Jesus did in the unrecorded years between his childhood and his ministry. <laughs>
2: <laughs> I mean, that... that <laughs> that just sums up John Prine. Uh, it's just, just something just, just delightfully <laughs> playful <I think> it's, <laughs> that's, that's Mostly great. the sonics of country music that put me off. Because I mm. love blues and I love musical storytelling and all of that, but... A lot of country folk I find it so sort of interminable and it just happens and I, I find it tedious and I and I don't You're 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 like my wife,
0: who who,
2: who you, detests in many respects. I'm still like, <laughs> I'm yeah, we won't I'm go, sure into, we, won't go into, <laughs> <that>. <laughs> we won't go into the other sure things they have here. in
0: common. No, but she absolutely loathes country and I think for some people it's just it's just a door that won't I open. agree. But what I do think is because probably when I was How old are you now? 16, 17? Um, I (laughs) didn't really like country music either. Um, (laughs) Actually, he's aged considerably since working at Rock's Band. He's he's actually 23. (laughs) He's not working with these two, does But, I, I mean, I think... I, look, this is going to sound like a, a banal observation. I don't know what you think, Mark. But I do think as you get older, I think country music speaks to you more. I think just the emotion and the depth Partly because it, it's not
1: written for kids. Yeah. It's essentially adult music. Or, you know, young adult music, maybe. People in their 20s and 30s. Yeah. But a lot of country songwriting is from... Directly from experience, and with a lot of other songwriters. Hank
0: Williams wasn't writing for Elvis Presley. First. No, I mean
2: I think that's the Though point. You know, our, but I mean, but how, I mean, how do you explain then that I love blues? I mean, there's a there's a similarity oh, I, there. In yeah, terms but that's of, also
1: you you've got a general affinity like I have with black. With African American music. It's a a very different tonality. It's all kinds of things like that. Yeah, Um, but I mean, but but it does have that storytelling, that experience. You you, you yourself were saying that you didn't like the tonality of country. And in a way, the tonality of country music is about sort of telling stories. And blues isn't massive storytelling music. It can do, but that's not central to it. But you, it you, is experience-based, and I think that I it, mean, has we, more, we, it has much more... It has much
2: more depth and variety of tone, and... It's, it's, I, I it's, Actually,
1: you know what? I have to say, Jasper, you say it, it has more depth and variety of tone. You haven't heard enough country music. Yeah. I mean, know, but, uh, brutally. I mean, everything from George Jones to Patsy Cline to Hank Williams... There's a huge a range, van Zandt and, to, 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 and, and, and those, those a, sorts of writers, and, you and know. all sonically extraordinarily yeah. different from one another. They yeah. are not the same thing.
0: I mean, I, I think Mark, Mark, and I would both would both agree that essentially we, we like many more blues R and B artists, but but I think a singer like George Jones can move you as deeply as oh, which know, one of the Aretha great, Franklin yeah, or Bobby Blue I'm Bland. George frankly, Jones is one yeah. of
1: the great soul singers, yeah, without a shadow of doubt. You know, yeah. and then there's people like Willie Nelson who's got got Almost more to do with the white jazz big speedabet tradition of the 20s and 30s as he has to do with Hank Williams or anyone mm-hmm. like that, mm-hmm. you know. So, and you've got Bell Wilson's Texas Playboys who are basically the can't bass orchestra with pedal steel and, and fiddles, you and know. And
0: frankly, you know, I think Steve Earle can be an extremely yeah. moving absolute, singer. Absolutely, you know, absolute. so,
3: so stick around. <laughs> yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah. Um, we'll, we'll be sitting here doing the podcast in about 30 years, yeah. and Jasper will, 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 we'll finally, will say, got... he'll say, I-, I get it now. I'm listening to a <laughs> good here for the roses I mean last the night. thing
2: is I'm, I'm not I don't no. say that there isn't good stuff I think that the problem is it could be that, that you're right I just haven't heard enough Good country. So much country that sure. I've heard really genuinely does sound very similar. Yeah. And that twangy voice and twangy guitar. And well, yeah,
1: you, you know, you're talking about the blues. A lot of people who don't like the blues say, well, that same old gravelly voice, that same old twangy guitar. Yeah, yeah. it's not Different kind of twang. Sure. You know? This country
0: has changed massively in the last it's horrible. 15, 20 years. I'd say
1: kind of country. I mean, when you
0: consider Taylor
2: Swift, it was originally I mean, I a country pop-up. Yes. that kind of country Yeah, well, pop, that's, well, that that's not But, but I, 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 I recognise that that's a different kind of music than what necessarily we're talking about but sometimes it can be difficult to divorce the superficial sounds that are carried over still into country yeah. pop from the good stuff that has come before it. But and so, back when, you know, I, you know, when,
1: when front, I first... Please, thought, feel, you know, you, feel free to play stuff. We'll have him a ta- We'll time to the chair and just play <laughs> and the country music for
0: the next two weeks. I don't think we're going to convince Jasper today. We'll just keep wearing, wearing away at him. Yeah. But, we'll,
1: we'll revisit this in a year's time. And <laughs> yeah. Time, every, find this be- go- on the same day every <laughs> year. <laughs> <laughs> and he'll become, he'll be George Jones's biggest fan. Mm Maybe.
2: Maybe. I mean, but I think I think that we're making slightly too stark an issue of this. It's not a question of, like, I loathe everything that is remotely in the ballpark of country. That's
1: pretty much what he said, wasn't it,
2: Barbara? Yeah, when I say that the audio <laughs>
0: this week is going to be John Prine, you grow well, like, I mean, like an, an animal in pain.
2: <laughs> no, but I mean, but he also played some of John Prine's music and sonically it just... I mean, I that's it. just it. Like, it, it's just... Whether or not the lyrics are good, is boring as a sound to me. That's it, really. And I, and no, I think, I get that, it. but I mean, as soon as you get more, <laughs> as soon as you get more into the into the realm of soulfulness, and yeah. you get more into the realm of folk, there is stuff that I really love. So it's I don't think it's really as sort of simple as as, as you're making out. Well, but there we, you go. We, I, we like to keep make things
0: simple, don't we? And binary in this yes, podcast. Absolutely. Let's talk about what some of is- the new pieces,
1: Mark. Yeah. Well, starting off with Starbeat, Mike Grant reporting on the Mersey scene. Mike Grant being an alter ego for dear Keith from long old friend of Rock's Back Pages. This is from rave in April 64 and he basically, he writes some, one entire column of just about the Mersey scene which he didn't do often because he's very London based as yeah. our Keith. And he's a blonde hairdresser, said to be very much the apple of Ringo Starr's eye at the moment. She lives and works in Liverpool and is his constant companion whenever he returns home close friend who works with her told me, Ringo brought her a lovely pair of handmade crocodile skin shoes back from Paris, and when he was in America, he spoke to her on the telephone for 45 minutes. 45? 45. Uh, in local clubs and coffee bars, where Ringo is so well known that he gets no world-star treatment, there is a conspiracy of silence over her identity. No-one will talk about her. She doesn't want to talk about their romance, said her friend. She does not want to be pestered by people, and Ringo would be very angry if she was misquoted. Well, I guess this is Maureen. Yeah, An early sighting of Maureen. Must be.
3: She married Ringo And she could have had porn That's why the lady is a
1: champ Detroit Free Press, 1966, Lorraine Altman interviewing... It's a brief interview with the Supremes, just got back from a tour of Japan and the Far East. And Mary Wilson says... The geisha girls were showing us how to dance geisha style, and we were showing them how to dance rock and roll, which is fabulous. And Florence Ballard, in the same interview, says, you don't buy potato chips in a bag like here. Instead, people snack on bags of dried fish and dried octopus.
0: Dried octopus. <laughs>
1: wow. A brief one is Charlie Watts of the Rolling Stones and the pop thinking, Melody Maker 67, on Mick Jagger. I don't know if he's intelligent so much as bright. He's very bright. But I know more intelligent people. Which I think it's actually pretty pretty astute <laughs> same year same paper paul mccartney is doing the blind date where a star is played record and it's jimmy hendrix experienced purple haze and paul says must be jimmy hendrix so jimmy freaks out and sounds all the better for it It's breaking out all over the place, you know. I thought it would be one of those things that people might keep down, but it's breaking through all over. You can't stop it. Hooray! This is a good record, too. I really don't know whether it's as commercial as Hey Joe or Stone Free. I bet it is, though. Probably will be. Fingers Hendrix, an absolute ace on the guitar. This is yet another incredible record from the great twinkle-teeth Hendrix. And, of course, it was Paul McCartney who got Hendrix onto the Monterey Pop Festival bill. You know, no one in America knew, knew about this, this, this American. It's a great ruse. So um, it's a sort of like blind date. Yeah, kind of, exactly. With a single. Exactly. Not? <laughs> Who is this? Yeah, right. yeah. OK. And, 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 and pulls just nails it. And a year later, same artist, and this is Anne Moses for the NME, sees him at the Anaheim Convention Center in, in uh, Los Angeles. Yeah, mm. California. And she says Jimmy's show was disappointing since his wild dancing and writhing were noticeably absent. And he blew an amplifier and he played four numbers in the second show. And in a way, you do, you do the jump from the enthusiasm sure. of Paul McCartney in the beginning of 67 to, to the beginning of 68. It's barely a year. It's, isn't it? barely, it's, it's a year. Yeah, barely a year. It's barely a year, a, a, exactly. a, 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 And mm. investment was exactly a year. And kind of everything starting to go wrong with Jimmy is already starting mm. to go yeah. wrong with Jimmy. But it
2: sounds like she's sort of expecting him to be this entertainer. Absolutely. This sort of, Spot you know, on, Jasper.
1: But one of the problems Jimmy had was that whilst he loved doing that, he didn't want to be just that. He also no. just wanted to stand up and play as well as he could. And as particularly the American fans were demanding this wild man act, you no. know. And it, 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 we've talked about it before, but it's the, the stuff sure. that wore him down. Yeah. Paul Simon interviewed again by Lorraine Altman. That's funny. I've got two The Lorraine great
0: Lorraine Altman. Yes. Who, we should point out, may well be coming in. We hope to have her in on the podcast. One I'll of the very good. first pop writers in the 60s absolutely female pop writers and yes. she's going to be in london in i think early april well and, um, fingers we've, crossed It'll we've
1: got a s- penciled in so, so good tune in for that interesting is paul simon actually says that he doesn't listen to lyrics i mean he writes lyrics but when he's listening to music he doesn't listen to lyrics he says of course i write lyrics so they're important to me i want to say something but I know a, lot, a lot of people don't listen to lyrics and then about me and julio in the schoolyard Yeah. I can understand how people read that into it, that being, is it a gay song? But as a matter of fact, it's not about a homosexual encounter. I would include myself in the rock world amongst the heterosexuals. (laughs) uh... A good songwriter like Jim Webb or Paul Williams feels compelled to go out and be an artist, and they're so mediocre. And... You know, you like Jim Webb as an artist. I, I, I won't stand for any criticism well, of Jimmy Webb. Well, well, especially well, from that well, smug um, little man. He says everything the Beatles did was their own. But at the moment, I'm a Believer is a good pop record. Good for them, about the monkeys. That's, that's you know, he's right. <laughs> I believe it's fantastic. saw her face
3: Now I'm a believer
1: 1975 record mirror Ian Dury being interviewed by David Hancock Ian Dury at that point was stood in Kilburn and the High Roads what a fabulous band name Kil- <laughs> absolutely love it <laughs> who was sort of pub rock band but, they, yeah, they but with a twist the weird thing about them was that they were a really weird bunch of people <laughs> and Ian Dury says, we've also been regarded as a bit peculiar visually. That's not ever been conceptualised, it just happened. The fact our drummer wore crutches, and that Charlie the Bassist is rather small, is just one of those things. Not to mention that, that Ian Dury was Correct, Yes, but, so that's right. Well, yeah. that's in the context of him talking yeah. about him being a cripple. Exactly, they, yeah. Then went on to write Spasticus, Autistica, Autisticus. Autisticus, like yeah, one of his most famous songs. two very brief thing, this a band called The Bangs, who would Adding an L and an E into their name became The Bangles and literally the mm. next year. It's Mark Leviton for Music Connection in Los Angeles magazine. And they're playing Owl's Bar. And at the end of it, he says, There's no question that all the elements are here to make the group one of the biggest draws around. 1983 is theirs for the taking. Well,
0: I actually saw... The bank, did you? As well, in really? in that year, probably almost exactly around then, not, not that gig at Al's Bar, but they were doing some kind of showcase gig for IRS, right? Which I think they were signed to at that uh-huh. point, and they were part of that Paisley Underground scene in Hanoi, mm-hmm. where all these groups you know, were sort of referencing the sixties and sure. the Bangs was a very sixties mm-hmm. name. Yeah, they were they were they were pretty good, mm-hmm. you know. One of our friends, David Sigerson, of course, then produced them. Did he, I did... he produced I didn't Eternal that. Flame, which was their huge number one. Wow. And yeah, Susanna Hoff's became did she do a record with Prince. I think Prince was very enamoured of her. But well, anyway, I mean, it was an interesting time to, yeah. to be in LA because sure. of all those, those bands like the Dream Syndicate, yeah. the Rain Parade. The Bangs were, were sort of like the girl group yeah, among, yeah. among that. Well, so yeah, it's good, interesting to Good hear. for
1: Mark Lovett and spotting, yeah. you know, that, that's, that's interesting. This is just funny. Jay Cordosh for Cream, 1983, interviewing Molly Hatchet's Dave Lubeck. I mean, this man is just a prick of the first fucking order. <laughs> So he says things like Black Sabbath to me. They suck a big one. I think they're sacrilegious. This is only my opinion, but there's no reason when the good Lord gives you the luxury of success to go in front of these impressionable people and give the sign of the beast. Molly and then, Hatch, what a great no, name! What a great name. I mean, they were they were sort of they were.
0: Fundamentalist Southern Rock. Yes, they were. I mean, they, they were from the South. They were, yeah. And you know, I mean, he's deceased now, but one can only assume that he would be a fully paid-up member of the Church of Donald Trump. Yeah, I, 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 I think
1: that's a fair bet. Um, he also says, "Boy George can sing. He's got a fine voice." He doesn't have to play a fucking faggot. There you go. And there
0: There it it is. There it is. 1980 In
1: 1985, The Guardian, Adam Sweeting interviewing R.E.M.'s Mike Mills. Well, he actually interviewed most of the band, but this is Mike Mills talking. And he's talking about a journalist who had written... He wrote that the Delph Wagos are a true Southern band and R.E.M. is not because the Delph Wagos songs are all about getting their paychecks on Friday blurring them on Friday night, riding around in pickup trucks and drinking beer, and that is the essence of the true South, whereas R.E.M. might as well be from Chicago. And it's, it's, it's a good point, because, you know, in some ways, early R.E.M., as much about Southern Gothic as anything else, as there, was an, there was always a touch of... Southern they were Gothic. very atypical Southern band. If but, you're
0: going to write R.E.M. into the story of
1: Southern Rock, they're they a real no, tangent. We've from... yet to tag them as Southern Rock, and yeah. write pages... But they are also of the south. They are of the south. It's a different south. I mean, they
0: came out of Athens, which is, of course, is a college town, town, and it was very, very like indie-oriented. It was certainly a million miles away from the Molly Hatchet (laughs) sensibility.
1: (laughs) Well, I thought Um, that was quite nice, but it's a great great juxtaposition. (laughs) But you know, they did feel. Of the South and identify the South in many ways, yeah. you know. And those early album covers,
0: they got this this ex- extraordinarily eccentric guy to do. I mean, it's the cover of what was it most famously like? Reckoning. He was called the Reverend Something, and and and, <laughs> and, and his and his paintings were full of sort of mm-hmm. strange Southern iconography, right. and so yeah. they they didn't entirely disavow yeah. the South. No,
1: no. I mean, he's Mike was resentful that one band is treated as a sort of southern band just because of the kind of noise they yeah. make, whilst, you know, well, actually, you know, we are we are just a different part of the yeah, South. A you know. different iteration um, of the South. 89, Enemy, Barbara Ellen, the splendid Barbara Ellen interviewing Debbie Harry. It's great. Or Deborah Harry. Deborah
0: at this point, yeah, at Mark, this point. Let's get it
1: right. And she says, they said I was cheap, that I was exploited my sexuality. It was quite the reverse of Madonna. I was 10 years too soon. And, you know, I don't quite understand
0: that quote
1: though. No, well, what, I saw it. What is she actually I, what is saying? She, saying there Madonna that, could get that she away?
0: wasn't exploiting no, no,
1: her sexuality. No no, or... no, no, no. She's saying that Madonna could do it
2: and not right. like, be accused of it. Yeah. Right. yeah. That, that's but, my the, the, treatment was reversed. Yeah, from yeah, 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 yeah,
1: yeah, um, yeah. And then she talks about being a, a Playboy bunny in the Playboy Club. Sure. She says the club itself had surprisingly high standards. It wasn't at all blatant. The Playboy bunny waitresses never made guys sit down and buy them drinks. Yeah, she's basically you know, it was a good job. And lastly, the terrific recent addition to our writer's st- stable, Stephen Daly, writing for the face oh, nice. in December '97. And it's when Texas Charlene Speterians her fellow Texans. Yes. Went to work with the Wu Tang Clan, which is one of the least likely kind of combinations I've come from. I had forgotten all about. Well, it I, I and you I'm, mentioned. I'm this. not sure much happened with it. And <laughs> anyway, so, so he says, RZA has decided to dispense with the original master tapes shipped over from Britain. He wants a completely new version, recorded rough and ready, without the standard safety net of a time code. This convention trashing wild style approach to recording elicits some consternation from the studio's engineer, a central casting white guy who warns RZA. You won't be able to sing to this, you know. Rizza waves him away and turns to Johnny McAlhon. Johnny Mahel being the guitar player with, with his text. This riff is in E, McAlhon tells Rizza. Maybe you should try it in the original key, D. What are you saying? I don't understand no keys, says Rizza. <laughs> <laughs> and it's, 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 it's a good. bit, it's a wonderfully descriptive bit of writing. It's, a, you know, when you sort of see films of hip hop artists in the studio, and they basically turn the studio into a party. This seems, whether it's dr dre or whoever you know everyone comes from their friends half the people are writing lyrics you know r- writing words yeah. blunts are being passed around and basically this is what happens rizzo walks off with the studio sampler three and a half grand's worth of sampler at the end of the session just can say fuck off to this engineer really? and they get banned from the studio have to find another studio the next day <laughs> that's great um but stephen dale is such a good reporter mm. He's just you know good interviewer, good all that stuff, but he's a reporter, and I I love good reporting. Yes, you know, and he's it. Great, what about, great. What about you guys? Well,
0: okay, just very very briefly, I'm slotting this in just in case next week's guest doesn't actually appear.
3: <laughs> um, I'll say no
0: more than that. We're slightly on hooks. We're hoping to have quite a big name for next week's episode. But this is a wonderful piece that Luke Turner, who used yes. to work with us here. Um, Lovely Luke. An interview that uh, Luke did with Neil Tennant and Chris Lowe, the Pet Shop Boys, for Stool Pigeon in May 2009. And it's, it's just a delight. I mean, they are such a joy to read in conversation. So smart. So, yeah, yeah. So witty. Neil talks about the 80s, when everyone was hanging out at the show And he mentions the Star Bar at the Camden Palace. And he says, I was there once, and George Michael came up and said, do you know who Jerry Wexler is? And Tanner goes, yeah, he produced Dusty in Memphis. He's amazing. And George goes, well, I've got this song, Careless Whisper. Do you think I should do it with him? I said, of course. Anyway, he goes and records it, and he comes back and says, it didn't work out, so I produced it myself. I thought, oh, God. But of course, George's version is better than Wexler's version. So anyway, that was the early 80s,
1: he Fantastic. Um, and then there's
0: another very funny Neil quote where Luke asks about... He'd been some sort of panel discussion about punk and post-punk, and Tom Morley of Squitty was on a Viv Albertine of the Slits, was mm-hmm. on a Colin Newman from Wire... Neil, this is typical Neil sort of, sort of uh, sociography, really. He says, "Well, what you want to do is ask yourself where they're from. They're Notting Hill Gate. You're talking West London. Now, West London has a pop culture which, as someone from Newcastle, I've always regarded with the deepest suspicion. <laughs> Whereas your man from Wire was from Watford, which is practically the north of England. <laughs> <laughs> Coming from Watford is a very different thing from hanging out on the Portobello Road. It's <laughs> a great I don't know
1: why you're looking at me, Bo, when you're saying that. (laughs) Yes,
0: Mr Portobello. Uh, And then just the other quick piece, is a great interview with the amazing guitar player Mark Rebo. James Med, who was one of our early podcast guests, interviewed Mark for The Word in 2011, and he talks to him, of course, about working and playing with Tom Waits and other stuff, and it's just fascinating, really. He asked him particularly about the track Jockey Full of Bourbon and how he kind of came up with the guitar sound for that. And Rubo's just wonderfully sort of poetic about it. He says what that actually is, it doesn't work based on blues licks like most rock solos. It works based on an older kind of solo that's based on chord arpeggiation. So it has something to do with Latin music, Cuban music and Django Reinhardt and he says that Waits works dramatically. He's a character in the song, and then it's my job to be someone who makes sense to have in the same room. He's a jockey, he's full of bourbon, and that places him in some kind of bar. But what kind of bar? <laughs> it seemed to be a bar with a wide selection of lowlife. It could be in Marseille, or it could be in Havana. <laughs> <laughs> That's
1: great. It's great, is nice. it? Mark uh, nice is a view. wonderful guitar player. I mean, just if, if, if any of you want to listen to one album of his own, listening to the Rootless Cosmopolitan, right. which is just fantastic it's yeah. such a great record you know yeah. getting thrown to Spotify there's yards of Mark Rebo yeah. on Spotify anything from jagged abstract out there stuff to almost kind of like rhythm and blues there's one album where they just do funk tunes the classic funk tunes hymns band he's just extraordinary I mean
0: because whenever he solos on a on a weights That's track right. it's never about showing off yeah. it really is but sometimes it's just incredible there's a solo on one weights track I can't remember which where it's just a single Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just
1: like, going on for like several bars. He's absolutely, he's he's my top five guitar players. Without a shadow of a doubt. In fact, he's playing on the
0: wire thing. You know, you know his solo on way down in the hole. Yeah, yeah. I think is one of the great guitars. But it's so spare and simple.
1: Absolutely. No, you're absolutely right. He strips. I mean, you don't hear technique, but it's not reboot. about. You technique. do not hear it's chops. you
0: flash, your virtuoso. He's got the chops.
1: You never hear them. It's, it's all, about character it's and flavour.
0: All of that. Jasper, young man, what have you got for
2: us this week? What have I got? I've got a couple of pieces. First a couple of pieces? Which is, mm, yeah, what a surprise. <laughs> First of which is an interview with Foles' Yanis Filipakis by one of our newest writers, Pip Williams and interestingly Yanis has a bit of a reputation for being a bit of a tough interview Mm -hmm. he's had some sort of not altercations but he's a bit you know prickly prickly prickly. and and but Pip said that the experience of interviewing him was actually very pleasant and I think they're very young at the time of doing the interview so Yanis was I think a bit more almost a bit surprised and was a lot kinder and and quite fun to just to to talk to and it's an interesting interview sort of it's he's always quite freewheeling in interviews so Pip asks the video for what went down is really intense and visceral what were the ideas behind it Yanis goes you know when you watch an Attenborough or a wildlife program you've got an animal like a lion it's tensed and it's watching its prey and the moment it charges in to chase its prey the song feels like that moment Pip asks in response to that so if the album was an animal it would be a predator Yanis, I think the album as a whole is like something that's more multicoloured and can shapeshift or change. So it'd be like an octopus or, or like a cuttlefish. I <laughs> love <laughs> the idea of comparing your album to a cuttlefish. I love that. Second reference
0: to an octopus in this podcast. God, dried octopus from oh, you're right, of course, Gosh. yes.
2: Gosh. God. See life, the episode. <laughs> the next piece I've got is... Leanne Havas live at the Royal Albert Hall... Seen by Stephen Dalton writing for the Times. Tell us about because I know you're a big fan. Yeah, I love Angela Havis. I think she's she's sort of singer songwriter. She's from South London. She's just charming. She's mm. lovely, and and I've seen What's her, her
0: style of music in a way. I mean, what, when you say singer songwriter, sort of
2: jazzy yeah. R and B ish. Not country. Not country. No. <laughs> <Sorry>. Surprising, maybe. <really. laughs> no. <laughs> I saw her at Latitude Festival a few years ago and it was sort of the first... It was just She was afternoon slot at a festival yeah. and it was kind of the first time I'd seen her or heard her music and I just fell in love on the spot, basically. Yeah. She's just a delight to watch. She's funny and quite personal on stage, even at a, on a big festival stage. And Stephen Dalton... Thinks, I think he he recognizes that charm, but he also says her low voltage live persona could benefit from a dash of Amy's badass charisma or Beyonce's imperial swagger. She has stellar talent but lacks star quality. And I don't really think that's quite the right way to approach her music. She's got a fantastic tiny desk concert, one of the NPR series, which is just brilliant. And I think to expect that kind of badassery or swagger is is slightly wrong. I think he what he may be... He's, he's sort of
1: saying that that's part of the job, you know, to, and to some and It shouldn't extent, be, have to be the part of the job for everyone. No, should, not no, everyone can be no, Beyoncé no, 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 I agree, but let's say, you know, if you've
2: been reviewing live acts for years you know you, you, you remember
0: kept,
1: the ones you with re- big charisma
2: yeah, but actually but i mean i remember her and she she was very charismatic mm-hmm. but not in a she she made it like a small room sure she made the big stage feel well, like a small great, room and yeah. i think great i think policy. that was you know she yeah. was really talking to individuals in sure. the audience rather than trying to be this larger sure. life persona and well, I, saw again, diva, I saw her again i saw her again at afropunk and, and she was just she was great she yeah. was she was lovely she mm-hmm. just comes across as a really lovely individual Cos i know what i got I know where we're going
1: you
3: don't need to show it i already know it all it's what you don't do it's what you don't say it's what you
2: don't do i know you love me i don't need proof it's what you And don't she's written some really interesting songs with it's not just smooth there's some there's some edge to her music as well and you know it comes across really well but, so, you know, so i think no, she's no Patsy's line <laughs>
1: Horse dead, beaten. <laughs> horse? you took by my bad horse, boy? <laughs>
2: <laughs> Lastly, I went to see Caravan Palace a couple of weeks ago at the Brixton O two 2, and so I thought I'd just mention that, I added my own piece to the, to the archive. Yes,
0: it's a, it's a ricicle just a Miracin Bowie.
2: But I, was, I, I sort of felt compelled to write about the gig because I, I sort of went last minute, was given a ticket by a friend, and was kind of perplexed by the whole thing because they're a sort of electro-swing group. Mm. Now, if you ask me, electro-swing is sort of an inherently dubious proposition. What is it, Just It's like <laughs> club, club music, but with... Sort of the musical idioms of the big band and of swing okay. music, and, and is there a whole movement? Here? Yeah, there, there's. Mm. It, it really, I think, had its time in the sun or, or under mm. the lights. of Maybe <laughs> under know. lights. <laughs> <laughs> I've um, got hydroponic music. Hydroponic <laughs> swing. Maybe five, five, six years ago. But oh my okay, god. Christ We're sakes. only just coming, but there. it's still, it's still, <laughs> it's still going, sort of. It's, it's. Does it have a swing groove, or is it a banging four on the floor? It's pretty banging, but then with like you know horns and and stuff. So
0: how old are Caravan Palace?
2: Oh, I don't know. They've probably been going for about ten years, I think. I don't. Good know. God. I don't know. No. I'm not. I'm honestly not me. sure. But what was weird? <laughs> what was what was weird about the whole thing was that on the one hand it was kind of weird and impersonal and and a human because of this contradiction at the heart of electro swing on the other hand it was just a lot of fun like they were entertaining there it was a good laugh like so i kind of came away going like did i enjoy that and i think the answer is yes i did but it was a bit weird at the same time it's sort of like strange where it was more purely entertaining than it was anything else they had a dance on stage their stage their stagecraft was not stacia <laughs> That's going in next week, I believe. Yeah, I gotta warn
1: you. Next week, we've got an interview with Stace from Hawkwind, which I can—it's yeah. all too brief. But, also ne- ne- also <laughs> next week, we are hoping, as
0: alluded to earlier, to be joined by a certain pet shop chap, but he's, he's quite busy at the moment. So I was going to say a former smash so hits what, writer. What, 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 yeah. what we're covering saying,
1: our asses. What Barney's it. saying, it probably won't happen. It probably won't
0: happen, yeah. <laughs> so naturally pessimistic. Yeah. It may just be the three of us or, or some stand-in. But we are hoping that Neil Tennant will come in and talk to us about... The, his smash hits years, which could be very entertaining. It could if be, not. It, you'd just be lumped with
1: us three. Kind of talking about country music. Country, um, country music. We're going to go. We're going to <laughs> We're going to with a, another John Prine clip where he's talking about his brother teaching him to play guitar, and it's very sweet. It's worth pointing out that he had a long term his brother, and he were, have been have been continued to be very close. His brother played with his band. His brother's also a physicist. I like the idea of a songwriter and a family with one son as a songwriter and the other son as a physicist. blows my mind, um, man. Bonnie and I are going to mosey on down to the a lot. Pre Jasper's going to go back to the office and do some work and we'll see you next week. <laughs> Jasper's going back to Planet <laughs> <Electro> Swing.
2: <laughs> and we're
1: going down to, yeah, the <laughs> Opry. go
0: to cyber, here next
2: cyberpunk week. fairground house of horrors. <laughs> <Yeah.
3: Electro swing. laughs>
0: Yeah, someone will be here next week to do this podcast. Not necessarily me.
1: (laughs) But thanks for joining us as ever. And see you next week. Next time.
2: See you next week. Bye. Bye. Was he part of your becoming a musician?
3: Because he. He taught me how to play guitar. Right. I heard him play. He played the. Spray train, Elizabeth Cotton spray train for my father once in the kitchen. And I just was total awe because it was my brother. And I thought, it was beautiful. He's playing this beautiful music. And I uh, it was just so odd to me. I was looking, I was looking like a, I was looking at a Martian or something. And I said, My brother is actually playing that thing. I've seen people <laughs> play guitars, but not my brother. You know? And I asked him if he'd show me how and he, I had a real problem. I was a teenager getting, I had a real short attention span I was always off in another world and it took something like that my brother had my attention and he said if you pay attention he said I'll, I'll show you how and he showed me how and I just practiced it sounded like nothing for six months and then one day I took the guitar out of the case and it was like as if by magic all of a sudden <laughs> you know my hands were rolling across. it. freight train freight train wrong so bad Freight train, freight train, run so fast. Please don't tell what train I'm on. They won't know what round i am
2: gone. That was John Prine in conversation with John Tobler in 1992, concluding this week's Rocks Back Pages podcast. The hosts are Barney Hoskins and Mark Pringle, and it was co-hosted and produced by Jasper Muris and Bowie. The Rocks Back Pages podcast is part of the Pantheon Podcast Network. For a list of articles discussed and full show notes, please visit rocksbackpages.com forward slash podcast. You can find thousands of articles, as well as hundreds of full-length audio interviews, at rocksbackpages.com.